This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Death's Door Denied, The Essence of Life and Spirituality. The man that should have died would have died, but could not die. And the author is Fred Everhart, and Fred joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Fred. Hi, Steve. The man, says it all, I guess, the man that should have died would have died, but could not die. You say this, a death-defying event that necessitated sharing the insights revealed to me that path to a perfect enjoyment of life. You have faced death how many times? Yes. How many times have you Whoa, faced that death? Times? Well, with those five heart attacks I've had and and uh, pneumonia, severe pneumonia, uh, those were enough. That's enough, yes. Five is enough. And, and, of course, your first one happened when you were how old? Oh, 57. 57, your first mm-hmm. major heart attack. Yes. And then... Uh, now you're in your 80s. 85. 85. And along the way, you had some incredible experiences, and we'll go get into detail. Even at death's door, you saw, according to you, you saw death's door. I did. And you wanted to open it. Oh, absolutely. Oh. I was in so much pain and discomfort, I couldn't stand it. Wow. And I saw this door, brown door, appear before me in a comatose condition. I could hear my children saying, Dad, we need you. Dad, we need you. Really? But I couldn't answer them because I was in that comatose condition, but I appreciated their their goodwill. But anyway, as I was experiencing this terrible feeling, I I wanted to get rid of it. And then I saw before me a door, a brown door, had a golden handle on it. And I, I, I found out that I recognized it as a door to death. And nothing scary about it. It was a welcome door. And I reached down to open that handle and to go through that portal. It would be a great relief for me. And that door disappeared. Hmm. And I was so disappointed. I wanted to enter that. I was really disappointed. I couldn't find that door anyplace. And then time slowly faded away. And the next day, my wife came for me. And this was after I'd had that massive hemorrhagic stroke about three or four days after that that's when all this happened and my wife the next day told me what happened the night before on in addition to the stroke that stroke which should have killed me by itself if you read my the medical history on it she told me the next morning that i had a heart attack the night before when all this happened to me and also uh, double pneumonia and uh, that's why I wanted to die so much. But, uh, uh, so there was a triple whammy. Wow. Any of those should have killed me. My goodness. And I wanted to to die, but it didn't. I guess you had to come back and write this book. Well, I had to write the book, not because of that event. I had to write the book because of the results of that event. That's the main thing. Right. You know, Aristotle once wrote that, that the greatest good 
is happiness. And that's what I found. All my life I had searched for the truth, the ultimate truth, no matter where it would take me. I wanted the truth, and I had kept an open mind for that. And finally, at 83, I got the truth revealed to me. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me, that massive stroke and the heart attack and all those things came together to reveal what that truth brought me, and that was how to be happy. And that's why I wrote the book for others, to be able uh, to achieve that total happiness, too. Boy, in their a, life and a, to find the truth about everything I changed my mind about a lot of theology and things of that nature to bring me to what was really true a lot of people are searching for happiness I guess it's the quest for everyone in life everyone who is born wants to be happy but so many don't think they can find it and they're, maybe they're looking in the wrong place where they haven't found but I found the key because God revealed that to me there's no doubt about that of course, I, I, I wanted the truth. Is there a God? If truth revealed to me, and I wanted to believe there's a God, but if truth revealed to me, oh, no, there's no God. I would have to believe it. I have that open mind. But it was re- revealed to me that there is a God and a wonderful God, not a furious God, not a bad God, not someone who won't do me any harm, but only a good God. That's a God that I found. Did you hear a voice? Did you feel something? Did you see something? There was no audible voice, but that impression came right to me, right to me. And I would have to reveal it to others, too. And you know something? With that truth that was revealed to me, would result, if everyone believed it and practiced it, furthermore, there would be no wars. There'd be no burglaries. We could keep our doors open. There'd be nothing bad going on in this world, We'd, in this chaotic world that we're ha- living in right now. It would be great. But I can tell you it takes work to be able to achieve that. And it does work because I've never been happier in my life. Now, there are those who say there is no God. There are they, those who question whether there is a God. And you say atheists and agnostics have a valid position considering considering the influence provided by the corruption of the Christian church and other churches. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I understand the position they're going in, and they're, they're, they're those who uh, can't accept what they see, but they're trying to worship the wrong God, because the God that was presented does not exist. The God, the real God that does exist, is much greater than all those that have been presented to us, even in the Bible. Because you understand, I used to be a fundamentalist Christian, and I've taught in many Sunday schools and many churches. But I found that uh, the, the true God that does exist, uh, and the Bible in itself, the Bible is not, not the inerrant Word of God, like a lot of many people who would like to think about it as, as that. But that's been pretty well established, and anyone who wants to examine it pretty thoroughly uh, can find that out real quickly for themselves, and I can give you some hints along that whenever we have enough time. (laughs) You say there is no judgment from God. That's what I found out. That's what I found when I tried to enter that door to death, and that feeling came right to me that God does not judge. We have judged ourselves by the life that we have lived, and we're on that pathway uh, through life, and we choose our pathway. And as we're on that pathway, that pathway continues right on 
through the portal of death. So we have judged ourselves already. And uh, I just don't get that from my experience. I, I'm in this pastoral care service at the Howard County Hospital where I go around to, to, to help people feel better. And other people I've spoken to there have gone, well, they said, to the other side. And they felt no judgment at all. So it's been confirmed by others. But I got that distinct, great impression. And I'm sure that voice came from that spirit, which I would call Jesus or God. The Spirit never identified itself as Jesus, never identified itself as God. But I identified that way because uh, by the gospel of Jesus, I, I, that seemed to come out through that uh, gateway to pure happiness. As I was recovering from that, I got this distinct feeling, impression, the voice that came to me, not an audible voice, you understand, but it came to me that what I must do is to love everyone. You know, Jesus taught that we must love everyone, well, love God and love people, and, and, and certainly as ourselves, and, and forgive people, and harbor no hard feelings. Well, I can tell you, I started practicing that right away. I even loved Adolf Hitler and uh, <laughs> everyone, and I would forgive everyone. And that... Uh, all that love did another thing. I was destined to die of <clears throat> congestive heart failure with all those heart attacks I had, <clears throat> quadruple bypass surgery, whatever. And last November, I had an uh, echocardiogram, treadmill test taken, and I was eating all the wrong foods because I was feeling so good. And that revealed that my heart disease had reversed itself. The symptoms had reversed itself. I no longer take the medications that I used to take, prescription medication for heart disease. I haven't taken that in a long time. And I feel better than I've ever felt in my life, and certainly happier just from that experience. And everyone else can feel that way, too. So you believe in miracles? I've experienced miracles. Absolutely. And I'm just not talking about this last miracle, but I had miracles before that happened to me because uh, I was in a acrimonious divorce with my first wife and my children were being greatly mistreated and they had to be rescued from that and finally the two boys came to live with me only one of them I had custody of legal custody and the other one I didn't but he was living with me because my former wife couldn't take it I mean she she couldn't take her take him living with her even though she's remarried and my two girls he even took off to Scotland and they were young girls and and they prayed. They prayed that they get to see their father again because they were told they'd never see their father again. But they prayed that they would. They tell me that today. And they're in the 50s. And uh, finally, I, from a detective, I learned that they were back in this country now from uh, in Springfield, Illinois. So the boys and I went up there to get them, brought them back. And they, I ended up being a single father for two, four children from then on. Extrajudicially, though, because the last order of any court from a judge in Henrico County, Virginia, was I was never to see my two daughters again. And you see, that order has never been rescinded, to the best of my knowledge. It still exists, but I raised them anyway. And I even went to law school to see what I could do, because I wouldn't get in any place there. Now, you understand, this was in the 60s, when the, the greater bias against fathers and their children. That's I consider that a miracle. Find out when any circuit court, uh, circuit court judge would tell you you're not going to see your children again and you disobey that and see how far you get. 
Well, you can see how far I got, and that was a miracle, in my opinion. Congratulations. Uh, You say this, you believe that revelations can enable anyone to redirect their life to ultimate happiness. A spiritual revelation? Yes. Well, I... (laughs) It... It directed my life, and that revelation was loving everyone, loving everyone. Don't you see where there'd be no wars if that happened? So these basic principles are really simple, you're saying. Simple, but simple, but have to be worked on. You just can't look at it as rhetoric. It takes action, and that can be difficult, but it takes action and work. But I can tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it. The righteousness of good works, as you put it. Well, as related to people, because I think we find God through people. Yes. People out there is where we direct us to God, the righteousness of God. And we can get along with people and love people and have no hard feelings no matter what the circumstances. That is the thing that brings us to to happiness. <laughs> it brought me, I can only tell by my by, by what I have experienced and where I am today. In fact, uh, <clears throat> the neurologist uh, told my daughters, even before I had the heart attack and the double pneumonia on top of the, of the uh, massive stroke, they told them, well, if he does, if he does uh, uh, recover, he'll never be the same again. In other words, I'd have cognitive deficit. <clears throat> I'd have physical deficits. Well, I can tell you, I'm in better shape now than I've been in many years. No cognitive <laughs> deficits. Some people may disagree with that. Uh, and certainly, physically, I'm in great shape. And, uh, hey, anybody's welcome to challenge me on that. So experiencing the truth on the road through the portal to death. Yeah. That's your story. That's my story and how everyone can take advantage and find pure happiness in life in life by loving everyone. And if everyone did that in this world, like I said, there'd be no more wars or anything else. But it, I, it, it's, you know, unfortunately, <clears throat> the traditional Christian churches say all you have to do is uh, recognize Jesus as God. And he died for your sins. That's all you have to do. Well, Martin Luther bought that, too. And Martin Luther also thought that, uh, and preached that uh, uh, he was going to convert the Jews. Yes, he would do that. Well, he wasn't able to do that. So at the end, he said, "I'm the thing to do is to kill all the Jews. That's what he said. And the church wouldn't go along with him on that deal. He's gone too far. And unfortunately, the history of the Christian church is persecuting so many people and killing so many people as heretics. Uh, the the Inquisition all through for the last 2,000 years. Now they can't literally kill anybody, so uh, I think the seminaries put out their students and saying, well, at least you condemn people who don't believe, don't believe like we do. You condemn them to death. <laughs> that, seems, that seems to be uh, so much uh, of the sentiment of so many people. Now I can understand why people, there's so many people that are, that don't uh, don't believe in God uh, because of the what's happened with this Christian church. The Christian church has become the traditional churches have become their own greatest enemies. That's why people are deserting. 
from him and going away from him or not attracted to him because they can't see any uh, truth in that message. But I can tell you there is a God. There is a God, not as visualized as the traditional fundamentalist Christian church, but actually exists and, and through experience. And people can gain that experience with an open mind. It requires an open mind, though. <clears throat> and as far as salvation, which they call salvation, or getting that direct road after this life, that would uh, uh, that would that involves work. Besides, just simply believing that Jesus is God, Jesus may or may not be God. Doesn't make any difference. And Jesus doesn't mind because he's only for righteousness. What is right? What is good for? People. The title of the book, Death's Door Denied, The Essence yes. of Life and Spirituality, The Man That Should Have Died, Would Have Died, But Could Not Die. The author is Fred Everhart. Fred, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on Barnes & Noble's, uh, Kindle, uh, uh, a lot of different places. Uh, people can order it on and online anywhere. Is, right, all you have to do is uh, get on their computer. And, of course, Amazon's available on that. And you can get on your computer and just type the title in. Right. And that'll give you a lot of links to a lot of different places. Thanks, Fred, for being with us on Author Talk. Hey, Steve, thank you for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. It's time to get your boots on with the Boot Campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray. Thursdays at noon, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. 
The title of the book, The Afghan Deception, a fictional story about the 4th United States Calvary. And the author is W.C. Hatunian. And Bill joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bill. Hi, how are you? Good to have you with us. Uh, obviously, Afghanistan's in the news all the time, and your novel, even though it's fiction, is historically accurate. I want to read what you have written so everyone understands the focus of your book. You say this, The Afghan Deception is a historical fiction novel that examines the world as it truly was between the spring and fall of 1879 and the relationship between two colonels of cavalry whose actions could forever alter the fate of the British Empire. Now, why did you choose this moment in time in the history of Afghanistan, Bill? Well, it just seemed to fit. Um, You know, you go through a timeline looking for some area where you you could take it and insert something in there um, that might fit and and be an interesting story. And when I was thinking about, you know, I was a fan of uh, John Wayne and all the cavalry movies he made uh, with John Ford. And so, you know, those things inspired me. I remember seeing cavalry movies uh, on the uh, banks of the um, uh, river uh, in, in Texas, where they encountered the uh, French and the Austrian Lancers, and they were defeated by our cavalry, the Rio Grande. And so I had that in the back of my mind, and I came up with this idea, you know, what would it have been like if we had taken an American cavalry regiment and put them up against any Europeans? And, you know, how would that have gone, given our techniques and our tactics compared to theirs? which by that time in 1879 were outdated. So in, in looking for a spot, I found the Second Afghan War, which lasted a couple of years, but there was a dry spell. And I thought, well, that'll fit. And so I just inserted my, uh, my novel in, in between that, those, that period of time that you had just described. Now, we're talking about these colonels. Uh, tell us a little bit about them, and they have a, a dilemma to deal with, don't they? I mean, they, they have this, this oath and tradition, but they also uh, are human and have common sense, and there's emotion involved here. There is. There is a lot of that. And unfortunately, the people that I would have loved to have seen play those roles in, in the movie are all dead because they, they're the ones that were in the 30s and the 40s, you know, with the slick black hair and the pencil-thin mustache. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, so, yes. Yeah, there isn't anybody around there, but that's who I think of. And um, Errol Flynn. It, well, no, not Errol Flynn. I'm thinking more in, in, in terms of, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute, but um, the, the Colonel McKenzie who was the actual commander of the 4th Cavalry Regiment. I, I didn't want to use him because he was a real guy, and he has a, a pretty impressive um, resume. And so I, I retired him, so to speak, or promoted him, and then I brought in this fictional uh, colonel, uh, Martin, uh, Martin Daniels, who I created 
to uh, take over the command of the regiment. And then on the other side, uh, the actual uh, the the 19th Royal Lancers are also fictional, but they're patterned after the 9th Royal Lancers, who actually existed. So I had to tweak that a little bit as well and put a, a fictitious commanding officer, start from scratch. And then, of course, the political element um, brings the two colonels together in London to meet each other and uh, to the satisfaction of the British uh, government, make sure, you know, they, they get along well with each other so that, you know, they don't both end up in, in Afghanistan, which is now, or India, which was now Pakistan in that area, and be kind of, you know, not friendly towards each other. So you have Colonel Martin Daniels of the 4th U.S. Cavalry, and then you have Colonel Stephen Sims of this 19th Royal Lancer Regiment. Yes. So how do they, do they like each other? Yes, they become very, very close friends, almost like brothers. And it, it, it stays that way all throughout the book from the time they meet each other. In fact, uh, there's a point in time where they, uh, shall we say, carouse around together a little bit. But they have uh, different oaths and they have different traditions. Yes. What kind of conflict does that make in their lives? It's pretty big. Um, you know, the United States Armed Forces, especially the Army, uh, embraces American exceptionalism. We learned that way from the Revolution uh, when we fought the British and the Indians and learned a great deal on uh, combat tactics and things. And we found that uh, the British or the Europeans are pretty starch shirts and that they fight in a certain way and it's very traditional and they don't vary from that very much. So that, their doctrine is, is that way. Ours isn't. Ours is more flexible. And that's why I believe we are more successful than anybody else in the world. And so now we have these two conflicts. But first, before we even got there, between the two governments, a rules of engagement were created where uh, both countries under President Hayes and um, Disraeli in England agreed that the United States would, uh, armed forces would not ever under any circumstances, get involved in any kind of a hostile situation or conflict, no matter what. And that was agreed to. So here we have an issue that will come up later where that will be challenged. And the Russians are involved. <laughs> yes. God Always God. in Afghanistan, it seems. Yes, yes. What I did there was um, everything that they did in the book is true, except that I... Uh, exacerbated it a little bit. I brought them down and I had them create a insurgency. And the thing that kicked off uh, again, or the continuation of the second Afghan war, was when the resident was assassinated. And in real life, the resident was assassinated by members of the Afghan army because they weren't getting paid. What I did, I changed a little bit, and what I did was I had the Russian insurgency come in, infiltrate the Afghan army, and they assassinated him. 
So then, of course, you know, they left the area very quietly and because their intent was to create this war because their insurgency was to um, attack the, the British when they came through the Khyber Pass and cause them, uh, the intent was to cause them so many casualties that it would be, uh, to the British government, unsustainable and they would go away. That was the intent. And what's the importance of Afghanistan? It was a warm or, or, or an avenue to a warm water port for the Russians, which they didn't have. Mm. Now, up to this point in time in real history, they had moved quite a bit to the east. They had taken um, all those stans, you know, Kazakhstan, Turkestan. They had actually moved into those areas back then. And uh, the czar was told by his generals that there's no way we can sustain 160,000 troops over, over the mountainous terrain and the deserts and stuff and keep them supplied. So it was never done. But that was their intent. That's what they had always wanted to do, and they had wanted to take it away from the British. And they also wanted to take India away from the British. They felt if they can get into Afghanistan and hold it, then they can move themselves into India and, and to the warm water ports. And somehow Russia gets the tribesmen to do their fighting for them. Yes, they do. And how? what kind of a, an alliance do they create? Well, they reminded the tribesmen that the emir was placed by the British and that it was, it was false and they should not show their allegiance to this man that if they helped the Russians, the Russians would restore Afghanistan to its original hierarchy, and they would be free, uh, the uh, rebels, not rebels, but the uh, tribesmen would be free to come and go as they wish, wage war on the Brits all they wanted to, etc., etc. And so they, they tried to instigate a jihad, if you will, and it was working. Well, you say the Afghan deception is a testimonial for doing the right thing, and standing by your principles, your values, and most importantly, your honor, no matter what the cost. This sounds like G-rated. It sounds like, like you say, this is John Wayne. Yeah, um, I would put, you know, that, that was probably a term uh, I thought better of after I wrote it. <laughs> I um, would, would say something more to the effect that it's a story of an internal conflict with making a decision given the circumstances and knowing that it will be crucial and have a profound effect on the outcome. So in this, this kind of conflict, this historically accurate novel with this fictional uh, conflicts, in the end, are you trying to say something? Uh, what's your overall theme, would you say? My overall theme is there are times when you have, to, you have to look at the circumstances and if you are bound by certain rules and regulations and you see something that is going on that is, that is life-threatening and that is going to... Um, well, the rules will prevent somebody from doing something that will save a lot of lives in the long run. You have to decide 
you know, whether you're going to commit yourself to doing that right thing or not. So good judgment and common sense must always prevail? It should. Especially when it comes to saving lives. Absolutely. But of course in war, saving lives sometimes uh, is the second on the list. It's winning. Well, yes, that's true, depending on where you stand. If you're a third party and not engaged in the conflict between two belligerents, that's a different story. The point of winning is primary in the two belligerents fighting each other. As a third party, one that would be aligned or allied with one of the belligerents, then it becomes more of, you know, I can't let this go on like this. They're, they're getting slaughtered, and I'm, I have to do something. So, so often, and you make this tribute to the American soldier, uh, they have to adapt and improvise to win. Yes. And at the same time, the goal, save lives. Correct. But when you read the book, you see where, you know, you have, uh, you have the political influence, the Viceroy of India, for example, who was a very nasty man in real life and was later recalled by Disraeli. Um, he's got a very nasty attitude toward everybody and everything. And, you know, they were very, very regimented in, in the way they did things. We weren't. And so now we have this situation that is totally fictional, and so you have to sort of develop this, because now you've got, you've got Americans mixed in with Brit, Brits fighting an insurgency. And so how do, you, how do you do this? Well, first of all, you're not supposed to be fighting them. You're supposed to be getting the heck out of the way. But then you get caught in a position where you have to make a decision whether you're going to stand and fight or you're going to leave. <clears throat> and, 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 to whose, and to whose betterment are you going to do this for? The title of the book, The Afghan Deception, a fictional story about the 4th United States Cavalry. The author is W.C. Hatunian. Bill, tell us how to get your book. Well, there, you can go up to my website, www.mynoveltales.com, and there uh, is a, there's a page in there where you can order the books, and there's about five different sources you can use. It's on ebooks. It's also on hard and soft cover through Author House and Amazon.com. Thank you, Bill, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. 
Check out their website, education, the number two, excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Bikeman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field, bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, 10 Years Later, Remembering 9-11. And the author and photographer is Larry Uden, and Larry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Larry. Hi, Hi, Steve. How are you today? Well, this is going to be quite a journey back uh, right after, in the months after, the traumatic event of 9-11. And this book is filled with your photographs that touched your heart and your mind at that time, and we'll get into what was going on in your life at that time that it just created the moment for you to be able to do this. So let me just read, though, what you say about your book. You say, this book will show what New York City looked like through my camera lens after 9-11. These photos were taken in late October, November, and December of 2001 in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, and Manhattan. Like everyone else, Larry, we all remember. What do you remember? Where were you when it happened? I was visiting a customer, a Mercedes-Benz repair shop at the time, in Flushing, Queens, uh, just doing regular business. It was a beautiful day out and uh, just making my first, maybe my third sales call of the day when, um, when I heard of this terrible news happening. So the terrible news, and, of course, just couldn't believe it, right? Couldn't believe it. I wasn't sure if I was hearing it the right way from uh, my customer's secretary. She happened to turn on the radio to hear a report of a plane hitting a building downtown, and I made nothing of it because we've had incidents here where a helicopter would crash, uh, landing on the Pan Am building, and it didn't faze me at first. Uh, until I le- was leaving, finally leaving, when she heard another report of another plane hitting a building. Then I realized this was uh, not a coincidence. So obviously we all went through the traumatic emotional experience of the enemy attacking the United States of America right here on our own soil. The unthinkable, right? The unthinkable. Unbelievable unthinkable. That's unimaginable right more like a yes unthinkable same thing 
and I had to go rush to see. I was maybe a mile away from where I could see downtown Manhattan, and that's what I did. I immediately drove to a place called Van Dam Street in Long Island City where I could view all the way downtown Manhattan, and I was shocked when I saw what, what, what I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Right. Two buildings smoldering. Now, we're going to jump forward to late October, November, December of 2001. What was the moment that all of a sudden you started snapping pictures? What happened? What was going on inside of you? It's hard to describe. There were flags everywhere on every building, on every facility, uh, cars, people were running through the streets with flags. And I, I was caught up in the fervor of, of emotions, and I just started using my camera, taking all the pictures that I, from every flag that I would come across. That's what I did all over the place. I would see, I would come out of my car, stop, pull over, take a quick picture, and go about my business. So you'd see this scene, and you'd feel something, and you knew you just had to take the picture. Absolutely. I didn't even have to go out of my way looking for a flag wherever I went. They were on the next street corner, on the next building, everywhere. And I just started shooting photos all over the place, all over Queens, New York, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens. Wherever I went, I uh, collected all these flag photos. With the thought in mind of uh, creating a book? I, it was the farthest thing from my mind, creating a book. I, I didn't realize I had a book until 10 years later when I came across these photos and found them in my closet. Nine rolls of film, over 200 photos. From, ten, from what happened 10 years ago, uh, just my reaction, that's my reaction, and that's what I did. And when I saw these photos from 10 years prior, I started to cry. Brought back brought all back the feelings. It brought back all the feelings, all the memories, and um, they needed to be seen, these photos. How did you That's, make choices? Uh, how did you, you know, you, you have about, what, about 100 in your book? There, it was very painstaking, and my biggest regret when I look back at all this was not publishing all of them. I think I should have put, uh, maybe put all of them in a book, but I chose uh, to pick my favorite ones out. It was a hard decision. That's a good question. Very hard for me to decide which ones to omit, not to include in the book. As you look at these pictures, I'll bet you can feel there's certain feelings that come even today, 10 years later. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you almost probably can remember the feeling of that moment. Absolutely. Wherever I was, even if I go to a facility, the people there would go out of their way. To, I would ask them, can I take a photo, a picture of this flag? They would hold it down for me. They would help me do it. That's, people went out of their way for you back then. It was amazing. We were so united after that. For, for months after 9-11, this country was just Americans. We were. There, there were no, that's a good way to put it. There was no uh, white, black issues. There were, there were no this, minority. Um, we were all the same. We were all equal. Yeah, no Republicans, no from, Democrats, no political parties. We no were just Americans. We, if you were rich, poor, 
middle class, blue collar. We were all one and the same back then. There, there were no class distinctions. No one was superior to anybody else. It was, it was such a different time back then. And with every picture, you put a caption to the picture. That's correct. Uh, I needed to do that uh, mostly for the people that are not from New York, uh, who don't know this town that well. It would show them a little what New York is like. The buildings, uh, the restaurants that I photoed, some of the hotels that I photoed, uh, photographed. It shows it all. Now, there are three photos that you say you really love. One is called the, quote, Mary, unquote, photo. What is that about? That, that is my favorite. That really hits home with me. This is a homeless woman that lived in Central Park in New York City. She lived very near uh, the upscale restaurant, the Boathouse Cafe. She lived underneath a tree for many, many years, and, and very few people even knew she lived under this tree. And one day when I visited Mary, probably in late October, early November, I don't remember exactly when it was, she had this flag wrapped around her purse, and I was so affected when I saw that because I knew she was affected also. I asked her very nicely if I can photograph, take a picture of the flag, and she turned to her side and said, go right ahead. And that just, uh, to see a homeless person who has, who has really nothing in life, she was also affected the way I was. And it didn't matter that she was homeless. I could have been homeless. We both felt the same way. There's the photo of the family selling cookies and lemonade. That's correct. Uh, the, the people were raising money for relief funds for Canna Fitzgerald, for whatever they wanted to do. There were people on the street selling whatever, cookies, lemonade. I was lucky to capture that. And then the photo of the four people marching through the streets with two flags. That's right. That was another instantaneous moment. I had just come back from seeing customers in Queens. I had just come off the 59th Street Bridge, and there were people marching through the streets with flags. I saw them. It was a fleeting moment. I jumped out of my car, asked them if I could take that picture, and they said, sure, go ahead. And that's the way it was back then. People were very proud to be an American. Those were Hispanic people, I remember. They were speaking to me in Spanish. I speak some Spanish. Uh, didn't matter. That's the way we, it was back then. So basically the reason you've waited all these years to do this is that you found them. I uh, found these pictures in my closet ten years later, this past April. Um, I knew I had them. I looked at them prior, maybe two years ago, and put them back. I said to myself something like two, two years ago, I should do something with these, but I didn't do anything with it until I came across them again this past April. That's when I decided these pictures need to be seen as soon as possible. Everyone was feeling very patriotic those months following 9-11. They sure were. People still are, but not to the extent, not like they were back then. The flags are gone now. Most of them are gone now. I'd say 95% of them are not around anymore. 
Some of them are on some of the buildings, but most of them are gone, and, and things are back to normal now in New York and the rest of the country. You've written a postscript. What? Why did you do that? And and give us some of the uh, details of what you have written as a postscript. Well, I really feel that New York is singled out for a lot of reasons. We're the center of not only the country, we're the center of the world. That's why we, the financial area was attacked. I wanted to promote my city. That's what I was doing. I, in the postscript, you know, people meet New Yorkers. They think we're very fast. We're... Um, we, I hear a lot of negative stereotypes about New Yorkers, and nothing, as far as I'm concerned, can be further from the truth. And that's what my postscript is about, how great the city is. We've got the best restaurants. We've got the best museums. We've got the best of everything here. And that's why we were singled out. I talk about all the sports teams we have in, in our postscript, how we have two basketball. We're going to have two basketball teams very soon. We've got two football teams and two hockey teams, two baseball teams. This is a tremendous city. The title of the book, this book of photographs and postscripts and feelings from Larry Uden. He is the author and the photographer. Ten years later, remembering 9-11, Larry, tell us how to get your book. Okay, the book is available through my publisher, which is Author House, at authorhouse.com. You can type in Larry David Uden, and my book will come up, or you can type in 10 years later, and my book will come up. It's also available at amazon.com and at Barnes & Noble. Larry, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for calling and having me.